Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Frank McIndoo. Frank is a fellow partner and advisor with myself at Coda Capital. Frank has particular skill and a great track record in managing direct Australian equities. And we talked to him about that today, a portfolio that he offers to clients that's named the Coda Enduring Equities Portfolio with an amazingly good track record. The portfolio since inception over the last 12 years has produced a compound annual growth rate of just over 12.5% versus the Australian index at just over 5%. Similarly, over three and five year periods, you're talking 13, 14% versus an index of around 5% per annum. And even over the last year to the 2020 financial year, his equities portfolio is up just over 6% when the index is in fact down 7%. So we talked to Frank about his experience uh, as a lawyer before transitioning into wealth management, his interest in investing in equities since uh, 1974, I believe, or 76. I think you'll find it's a fascinating listen with a hell of a lot of experience being handed out through the way. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Please remember that this isn't specific advice and people should seek their own advice prior to making any investment decisions. And we also encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the back of the podcast. Please remember to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Stay safe and enjoy the podcast. Frank McIndoo, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, great to be here. Frank, well, this is a, a quite an unusual uh, podcast, one that I'm uh, quite excited about and very, very happy to have you on. But uh, as, a, as a colleague of mine and a partner within Coda Capital, it's the first time we've really had anyone as an investment manager, portfolio manager from within Coda uh, talking on the show. So uh, welcome aboard. Thank you. Frank, perhaps you could start off by giving our listeners um, a little bit of insight into who you are, your background, uh, and what you do. So uh, I'm an advisor at Coda, where I've been for a bit over two years. Um, I started in wealth management in 2002, so I've been doing that for quite a while. Uh, but before that, I was a commercial lawyer for 20 years. Um, commercial law very generally, but then over time specialising in capital raisings, debt and equity. I actually ended up doing quite a bit of uh, corporate restructuring in the early 90s. And then in the late 90s, there was a lot of um, competitive bidding for infrastructure assets uh, and project finance. So I had sort of quite a long and varied career. Um, which certainly gave me some insights into the way the world works, both the debt side and the equity side. Uh, And I suppose actually, relevantly before that, uh, I first started investing in equities in 1976. So I've been, uh, they say that experience is the name we give to our mistakes. And I've been making mistakes with my own money for a very long time. And I like to think my clients uh, 
and coded clients generally get the benefit of that. And Frank, why did you make the move from being a corporate lawyer into the wealth advice space? Well, it was a combination of, look, I'd always been very interested in markets and wanted to pursue that, but also I had a couple of young kids and project finance where you might have to disappear to another city for three months at the drop of a hat wasn't really compatible. So there was a bit of push, a bit of pull. And I would imagine also that background of deep legal knowledge of understanding the structures that sit behind many of the financial instruments which your clients now use gives you great insight. If I think of hybrid investments that in many cases people think often a, a you know very very liquid high grade um, bank security in some cases but that that deep knowledge of yours how has that held you instead to advise clients well it certainly means with things like hybrids <clears throat> I realized just how complex they are they are because I used to draft the terms of them myself and I think um, hybrids in particular there would be wouldn't be a hundred people in the country who really fully understand the ins and outs of those if we had a deep recession and the bank's solvency were at risk. Now, 1976, that's uh, quite a fair bit of time to be managing money and uh, buying stocks. What has your investment philosophy evolved to now, given that experience? Um, well, one thing is certainly it's evolved that it's very hard to pick what's going to happen in the short run. Um, but if you can find a business that has a, a, a an enduring competitive advantage and it's in an industry that's growing faster than the economy and, you know, its balance sheet is sound so it can survive <clears throat> any downturns, you're going to do well. Um, and it's very much that I think uh, probably one of the edge edges that we have in running this portfolio is that most institutional investors, their benchmark is every quarter. They have to be at or about the benchmark because if they don't do that for a couple of quarters, people are going to start pulling money out. So they've got career risk on even a relatively short period of time. Whereas I have no idea what's going to happen over the next six months and so i find that you get much better results and this is something i learned with my own money investing with a five-year uh, time horizon than a three-month time horizon and let's you, you just uh alluded to the the keep portfolio the coda enduring equities portfolio um <clears throat> i'm looking at a fact sheet of that printed out to the end of the financial year 30, 30 June 2020. And of course, the, the numbers uh, are just you know, fantastic on almost any measure. If you look at since inception, you're looking at a, a, a gross portfolio return of 12.5% versus uh, the index of 5.23. If you look over the last five years, you look at 14.6 versus 5.9. Um, you look at the last year, it was up 6.1% and uh, the, the index of the ASX 200 was actually down 7%. Um, and even the short-term ones uh, all, all look good. Um, 
firstly, what is keep? And then secondly, how do you produce the, these returns, um, which are so strong? Well, keep is the Coda Enduring Equities portfolio. And apart from being a nice acronym, uh, the enduring part of it is a reference to the enduring competitive advantage that we're always seeking. That's that's absolutely critical. Uh, tend to avoid businesses that are in competition at all. I mean, ideally, it would be a portfolio of monopolies, but we'll settle for monopolies, duopolies, or companies that dominate their industry. That, that's really what we're after. That's the enduring bit. And it's also the other enduring bit is the low turnover because we're taking a long-term view. So the average holding period is about seven years. And in fact, I think probably a third of the stocks uh, were in it, on, in it now, were in the portfolio day one, 12 years ago. Wow. That's, uh, I don't think there would be many Australian equities portfolios or managers in Australia that would uh, have that lower turnover. Yeah, I mean, look, and it is possible for it to be too low in the sense that the world is changing and the pace of change is clearly only picking up. So I do, I do suspect that, you know, the next 10 years, the turnover might start speeding up a bit because you can have perfectly good businesses now. Somebody devises some software or something like that and suddenly it's not such a good business. Um, you know, you've only got to look at something like, you know, the Fairfax Rivers of Gold with their advertising, which for decades was a wonderful business and then pretty quickly it, it disappeared. Yep. So, Frank, take us through your process, if you could, please. Well, it's, a, it's really a, a, the main thing is studying the business, making sure that the industry is growing faster than the um, economy, probably because of, you know, it could be something like demographics that's supporting it, you know, growth in the Australian population, growth in the ageing population globally, um, the global increase in, in chronic disease, um, growing increase in wealth. So you want an industry that's benefiting from one or more of those sort of secular growth themes. So you want to be in a good place to be have a business. You don't want to be in a shrinking area like, for example, the major banks where they're, it's extremely competitive, very heavily regulated, and, you know, the growth is slowing. You know, the, the next decade or the last decade are going to be not remotely as favourable for the major banks as the previous 30 years up to sort of 2000. So Keep, for example, has no major banks in it and hasn't had it for some years, which is, of course... One of the reasons why it's outperformed, um, you know, if you the mere even if you um, even if the rest of the portfolio had only moved in line with the index, the mere fact of not having major banks in it would have guaranteed you pretty substantial outperformance for the last few years. So it's as much about avoiding losers 
as picking winners. And Frank, what are, what are the parameters and objective of objectives of the key portfolios? What can and what can it not do? Well, it can invest in any ASX listed stock, um, and it's deliberately relatively unconstrained. I mean, the, the purpose is to make the best risk-adjusted returns possible with low turnover, which tends to mean that it's going to be pretty good from a tax point of view. It's not sort of specifically targeting tax, but the long-term horizon tends to mean that it produces very good after-tax returns compared with most fund managers who turn the portfolio over sort of every 12 months or faster. So they, when you look at their returns, everybody reports pre-tax returns, but a lot of them you could halve it for a private investor in their own name by the time you've taken the tax out. It's an interesting one, Frank. You, you talked about um, an almost, you know, one of, one of the things I've always found challenging with clients is if they want to get smarter, they read more books and study more. If they want to get fitter, they exercise more and go to the gym more. Um, and they instinctively feel with their portfolio, the more activity they take on it or more action they take on it or the more transactions, the better their performance is going to be where it sounds like you're saying that one of the, the, the reasons for your outperformance over time has been doing nothing in many instances. Well, that's right. Many months, uh, you know, there could be three months between transactions. So if your aim is to be a, a really long-term investor, you want to find things ideally that you could hold forever. But, you know, the world does change a bit more than that and, um, and you do get things wrong. But if, I, if the turnover is creeping up, then I'm thinking, well, what did I do wrong there? You know, what, what didn't I realise about these businesses that means I've got to sell them? Um, which is not to say, look, you know, sometimes you realise you've made a mistake and hopefully you realise that early and cut it early. But the higher the turnover, the more I think, well, I, you know, I've missed something here. I, you know. So, Frank, what are some examples of those stocks that have been in the portfolio perhaps for a long time or ones that you just uh, really like the business model or have been real winners for the portfolio? Um, well, I would say things like uh, CSL has probably been in there since the beginning. Uh, Cochlear would have been in there since the beginning. Um, computer share would have been in there since the beginning. Um, there's probably been at least one airport in there since the beginning. Um, and when you think about all those stocks, they're all, you know, so CSL is an oligopoly, in, in an, uh, ol global oligopoly, which in fact, the, the number of competitors has just fallen over the years. So their position has actually become more dominant. Cochlear has always had 60% market share. Airports um, are always monopolies. Not much of a substitution. Uh, computer share has always been dominant in its market. So they're, they're pretty sort of typical examples of the sorts of things. Um, it's also worth saying that you're looking for, a, for good stocks, but you're also trying to find them in different industries 
hopefully so they don't all go up and down at the same time because it is uncomfortable as a, an investor if all your stocks, even if you have a good five-year return, if they're all going up and down at exactly the same time, the volatility, look, it's just, it's uncomfortable. So I'm always looking for new stocks in new industries which aren't correlated with the existing holdings. And Frank, what are some examples of uh, investments or stocks or companies that uh, you wish you had your time again that on the flip side have been detractors or errors or something you've had to cut and move out of? And, and what have you learned from that process? Um, I'm just trying to think. So one would be Challenger, which on the face of it, you would say it dominates its its market. It's yep. dominating annuity. Annuity market. Mm-hmm. It's clearly, it's got uh, regulatory tailwinds. The government is trying to um, get people to put more and more money into annuity. So you'd say there's a tailwind there. It's clearly got a massive demographic tailwind. And I think the, the growth in assets in pension funds is you know, 10 to 13% per annum. Uh, so you'd say everything in its favour is in its favour. But on the other hand, what's happened is we've got a short-term um, dislocation with uh, financial advice having been severely disrupted by the Royal Commission and all sorts of worries around that. that. Plus, investment markets have been very unkind to a lot of the sorts of things they're in. So that's been one where you'd say all the long-term indicators look really favourable but it just hasn't worked for what are probably short-term reasons, but nevertheless, it's been, um, it's been pretty painful. And Frank, what would you say to investors in the current environment who are seeking income with the cash-free rate closing on zero rapidly and around the world income uh, being very, very low, um, and generally speaking over the longer term, what, what, what's your response to clients who are very thirsty for income? Well, I, unfortunately, I mean, it's always been the case in the equities market that it tends to be that the higher the income, um, the higher the risk or the lower the growth. So this portfolio is very much aimed at getting the best total return, um, which is not to say that I'm against dividend income. I like dividend income, particularly if it is fully franked. Um, and in fact, you know, historically about half the return on Australian equities has been in the form of income. And it's also true to say that if a company's paying frank dividends, it means that the they're paying tax. And that means that the profits are genuine. I've yet to hear of some tax scheme, uh, you know, involving paying excess tax to, to fund frank dividends. So I like dividends, but generally speaking, the best growth companies, they don't pay a high rate of dividend, but they actually tend to have a high growth income, growth in the dividend income. So, you know, for example, you would have somebody half a dozen years ago 
who was seeking income might have said, well, look, I'll buy Telstra, mm-hmm. uh, which probably had a six times dividend of what CSL was paying. But I, I suspect somebody put $1,000 into each then is now getting a much higher income out of their CSL shares than if they just held their Telstra shares. So yeah. I think, uh, look, it is really hard to, to get income out of equities. Um, but I suppose it's fair to say that the income from equities relative to bonds has probably not been higher. I mean, it used to be, you know, say 10, 15 years ago, you would have expected, say, 6% yield on government bonds and you would have got, say, 4% on your equities. You're probably still getting 4 to 45 on your equities if it's, you know, Mm-hmm. representative of the market and you're only getting 1% on on bonds so from even though the income doesn't seem to be very high on equities it's probably uh it's probably pretty good relative to uh, a lot of the conventional alternatives absolutely and one of the things i recall us uh discussing in the office back in the days when we were in the office and you know there, there was good water cooler talk um was the change and the perhaps change of value managers in the market and whether or not they're going forward. Obviously, the last couple of years, value managers, those managers who tend to hunt for companies that uh, have low price-to-earnings multiples and be unloved by the market and, and you know they think there's still a bit of life in it and, and a manager being able to buy that and then let it recover back to its historical average or come back. I think we had a discussion around that. Do you want to maybe share your thoughts about value managers going forward versus growth or that style of investment? Yeah, well, I think one of the, you know, if you go back sort of 80 years or something, value meaning buying things on a low PE or a low price to book or, you know, some asset-backed measure, you know, has tended to do pretty well. But I think certainly these days, um, one handicap for that style of investing is that the there is much more rapid change in industries. So more and more of these companies that are on a low PE are on a low PE because they're going out of business, they're in trouble, as opposed to that they're temporarily out of fashion. So I think the pace of change in, in various industries means that there are more value traps, if you like, than there used to be. Um, the second thing is, you know, if you're just doing a, a, a discounted cash flow valuation, one of the key inputs is the risk-free rate. And the lower the risk-free rate, the more attractive relatively earnings several years out or 10 years out are so if you know you're going to be earning ten dollars in 10 years time if your discount rate is six percent well you know that's a massive discount rate and in present day terms maybe it's worth four Mm -hmm. if you look at the the bond now and your risk-free rate is 0.9 percent well in ten dollars in 10 years time is you know is maybe worth eight dollars fifty. So what that means is 
just using a disciplined discounted cash flow valuation methodology, a growth stock is going to look a lot more attractive relative to a value stock, all else being equal. So these low interest rates are boosting the relative valuation of growth stocks. Now that, that is probably a tailwind for this portfolio because I've always been looking for companies that are growing faster than the economy rather than traditional value stocks. So that is that, that lower discount rate has got to have been a help in uh, the relative performance of the portfolio. And if half covered it there, my next question, Frank, and one of my notes here was to talk to you about how you go about valuing those growth companies. And you've had um, a couple of very strong uh, winners in the technology space and in areas that I'm sure a lot of traditional managers would have thought that's too expensive only to see it, you know, uh, you know double or even quadruple in some cases. How do you think about valuation for new industries and, and companies in you know, spaces like technology, for instance? Well, I you try to... I, there are a lot of technologies which I'll avoid. So if I don't... Things like biotech, I just don't have the necessary PhDs um, in biology and chemistry and all that sort of stuff, let alone the international contacts to know what's going on elsewhere in the world. So I just, you know, the, the biggest group of stocks on the ASX for me is the too hard basket. And so if there's rapid technological change, that is actually something to avoid. It more tends to be that the things that I tend to like uh, are users of technology uh, who have, say, a network effect as a result of technology. So we talked about Fairfax being a big user, a big loser from um, from change. Mm-hmm. Fact, uh in the portfolio uh, have always been things like realestate.com, car sales and Seek because and are they, are they, they're not really technology stocks in some ways. I mean, their business model is enabled by technology, mm-hmm. but you're not making a bet that their technology is better than anybody else's. It's not, just, VA, it's not VHS versus beta. No, exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, so it's more, not so much a technological advance in itself, it tends to be more somebody who's taking advantage of technology to create a dominant market position. That's, that's probably a better, better view of it. And Frank, how have you found managing this portfolio through COVID um, and, and, and what is your outlook at the moment? Well, I mean, it's a question, there's always uncertainty, um, but I think it's fair to say that the combination of uh, COVID's effect on the economy plus geopolitical uh, problems make this, you know, the most uncertain period at least since the Second World War. So the uncertainty is greater. So that tends to make me think I want to be more diversified than usual. So the less confidence you have in any one stock, the more it makes sense to spread your bets a bit uh, as long as, you know, it's still a good quality bet. 
but it, it makes me more inclined to be a bit diversified than I would otherwise be. Um, and it certainly then makes me re-examine all the, the business models and say, uh, is this business model now obsolete? Um, and that it, it hasn't had that effect. I mean, it's certainly well, things like airports, for example, have been clearly severely disrupted. And, you know, I'm thinking about that. For example, I can see there could be an enduring effect on business travel. Uh, I think now that we've all been forced to spend hours of our lives on Zoom, where, you know, six months ago, the, the technology was there. Zoom existed t six months ago, but you couldn't be bothered making it work and getting through all the gremlins that are inevitably involved in adopting a new technology. We've now had no choice. So we've all become experts on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is. And I think that is going to have a, an enduring effect on the amount of business travel. Although um, we can see from the difficulty we have in stopping the spread of COVID, that human beings are fundamentally social animals. And you can lecture to people for hours about the need for social distancing, give them a glass of beer in one hand and surround them with friends and just see how long that lasts. <laughs> so I actually think, yes, there will be uh, an enduring effect, I think, on business. But even that, I think in 10 years' time, you know, maybe business travel will be down 10% or 20% on what it was, but it's not going to be down 80%. Mm -hmm. And I think personal travel, that, that will be just as appealing as it's always been. And in fact, if people haven't been able to go on a, a trip for a year, there'll be a huge catch-up effect. I think people will be desperate yeah. <laughs> to go on a trip and get a, have a proper holiday. The pent-up demand. Yeah. And um, over this period and in the last few weeks, as people have become concerned that valuations are perhaps elevated and the size and speed of the recovery in economic values and markets may not actually reflect the underlying health of the companies and the portfolios that they represent, there's, there's also been... Um, a rally in the gold price and uh, a lot of people talking about gold. How do you think about gold as an investment, Frank? Well, I'm, the first thing about gold is uh, not only doesn't it produce a cash flow, it costs money to store it. So a negative cash flow asset with costs attached to it, you know, in the long run, uh, and by the, and the long run is what I'm after with this portfolio. I don't think I, I don't think it's going to fit. Having said that, um, you know the level of uncertainty, and in particular the novelty, and I use that term in the most critical way possible of all these central bank activities, certainly. You know, you would have to say that fiat currencies, there's a tendency to debase them. And that, relatively speaking, makes 
gold look more attractive as a store of value relative to a currency. And, you know, I can laugh at gold and say that it's got a negative return, but the same goes for for bonds in Deutschmarks and Swiss francs and and in most currencies it's barely positive. So certainly the arguments for gold, it's hard to think of a time when they've been better. Mm. But it's certainly not going to find its way into into this portfolio. And even gold shares, um, you know, mining is such a difficult industry. You can think you're going along fine and then there's a cave in or the ore body turns out not to be good as, you, as good as you thought or you have production problem. It's a very tough industry and I actually, uh, another one of my university jobs was working in a mine for three months and it's a very tough, a very tough business and very cyclical. And really with the keep, we're looking for things that we can hold for a long time. And so mining shares, generally speaking, are not going not to fit the bill. Now, Frank, one of the uh, questions that, uh, one of the many things that I've learned from you in your time uh, with, at Coda and, and working alongside there is a question that I'm going to play on you. And I'm sure it's, it's from you that I got it. What should I have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> um, what you could have, uh, should have asked me is, you know, what's your edge? Because people are saying, well, should I put some money in the keep or should I put it in with some, some fund manager? Now, mm-hmm. one of them I mentioned before, which is that um, I've been fortunate that this, the 12-year track record has been earned with uh, the third link fund uh, as the underlying investor and I started off there um, saying to Chris Cuff who runs that I said look I'm going to run this on a completely indexed agnostic basis and if you think I'm off the rails at any stage well you'll sack me and that and that's the way I've run it so it is run without the normal constraints of a fund manager so instead of trying to match the quarterly returns, I'm taking a long-term view. And in fact, I think most private investors, that's what they're comfortable with too. They'd rather have something where they can see the long-term rather than, um, you know, massive turnover. Um, The second thing is that because of this career risk that fund managers have, you know, they'll often, when they're talking about their process, they'll say they're looking for companies, you know, with a high return on equity and a strong business model, and they'll go on and on and on about that. And then you'll say to them, well, why do you have this company over here, whether it's, you know, Telstra or the major banks or whatever? And they'll say, oh, well, it's a very big part of the index. So I'm unconstrained by the index. Um, and if I can find a good company, and it happens to be, company number 150, it might be, you know, 5% of the portfolio. If it dominates its industry and Mm. it's a growing industry, that's just as likely to be 5% of the portfolio as a company that's in in the top 20. Um, Another thing that's worth mentioning as an advantage over most funds is most of them, because they're um, closet index followers, most of their holdings are in large, well-known companies that make up 
the top 20, which is also the sorts of stocks that clients will often have bought for themselves in any event. Whereas this portfolio only has three of its stocks in the top 20. So the keep portfolio is much more likely to be a genuine diversification away from what the client has than most funds. Frank, it's interesting you touched on a point there where uh, managers are very index aware. And I can almost to the to the, the day remember when a manager first said to me, oh, no, no, we really don't like XYZ company, our top 10 in the ASX. And they said, oh, yes, we, we, we only hold half the weight of the index in it. And, you know, it was like 10% of the index, but they had 5% of their $2 billion portfolio in a company they really don't like purely because it was a big part of the index, just sort of crazy stuff. Um, thanks for that, Frank. In, in winding up, I thought it would be helpful. You know, obviously, this is part of personal help here as well. I hasn't, haven't seen you at the water cooler in the office for the last mm. couple of months, and it may be a little bit longer. And of course, our, our good friends down in Victoria uh, are going into some steeper lockdowns. So they may benefit as I've benefited in the past from some of your streaming tips. Uh, what, what's currently being watched at the Mackindoo House or is on the list or, or can you recommend for our listen to, listeners? Uh, one that I saw relatively recently is called The Capture, which is a UK one, uh, a BBC one, and it's very interesting in the sense, I mean, it's very current because it's about how video uh, footage and streaming can be manipulated. So uh, for people who are spending all day on Zoom, it's probably a, a good thing to watch. Um, one that I, it's probably a year, couple of years since I saw it, but I think of it quite frequently, is called Counterpart, which is about, um, it's a sort of, uh, it's an espionage thriller. Is this so a Berlin of, one where they've got the two cities? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was on SBS. I think you've probably got to get it from some streaming service now. I think it's off SBS. Yeah. But it also, you've clearly seen a bit of it, but um, one of the key plot movers is a pandemic. Okay. So maybe that's not what people want. They want something without pandemic. <laughs> Escapism. <laughs> uh, and if you wanted escapism, uh, again, an, another older one, which I haven't been watching, but I'm thinking of re-watching, uh, is Friday Night Lights. Oh, Hype, which, Texas uh, High School Football. How good is it? Exactly. And I think given we're struggling to see any decent sport, I think a bit of uh, Friday Night Lights might be, you know, a nostalgic escapism. Yeah, it's terrific. Well, Frank, um, thank you very much. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Hope to see you in the office before too long. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.